Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 37th episode of the Truth Island podcast. Life sometimes has a funny way of sending us mixed messages. On one hand, we are told by our loved ones that we must be grateful for the things that we have. We must be grateful for having a roof over our head, food to eat, and a family that loves and cares for us. We are taught that gratitude is a supreme virtue and that no matter how bad we perceive things can always be worse. And that there are others that have marched before us in much tougher shoes than we are currently wearing. Such themes are enshrined in the teachings of of Buddhism, which preach that if a person can successfully give up their desires, they may stand a chance of achieving enlightenment. On the other hand, our society also values accomplishment and achievement. We are told that we are lazy or slothful if we remain stagnant or stuck in the same position for too long. We should all aspire to rise the corporate ladder and become powerful so that we may direct others, buy our bigger home, live in a more desirable zip code, and impress people with the buckets of accomplishment that we have accrued throughout our lifetime. But how is it possible for a person to both be ambitious and desire success, but at the same time be grateful for their current plight? For example, Should an employee learn to be complacent and grateful in their current situation? Or is it only right and natural that they should dream of achieving more? I am once again joined with Sam, who is going to help me understand when exactly we should be content laying on a picnic blanket and when it's time to get up and find greener pastures. Sam, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's great to be here. Uh, I wanted to just uh, begin by talking about this issue of contentment and ambition um, in my own life. You know, growing up, uh, I had a very strong dad figure. I mean, he was uh, a strong disciplinarian, very, um, very religiously minded, uh, very task oriented. And, uh, and then I also had a, a strong older brother. Um, so I was the middle of five uh, children. And um, so my oldest brother and my dad were kind of two major figures in my uh, upbringing and my sort of self-development, my self-conception. Um, and and where they come into play with my story about contentment and ambition is sort of the two poles uh, in, my, in my heart and my mind about how I think about my place in the world, um, how hard to push sometimes. And and then when to, to pull back, you know, growing up, uh, my dad was a big advocate for, uh, you know, the Christian virtues of self-control and self-restraint and, and Christian duty and being grateful. You know, I, I spoke in a previous podcast about certain um, emotions that were off limits growing up, like uh, unhappiness or um, even kind of sadness to a degree, Uh, not liking something or not enjoying something was not an option. Um, You sort of always had to, you know, if something was hard or or hurtful, take a licking, keep on taking, as I mentioned before, but, but also just keep your head up and do, do your sort of do your duty. Sam, Um, can I ask you a question? Like, would would you describe your father as like, let's just say that your father had a really busy day and he was kind of taking you along to the hardware store or something like that. And you would maybe ask for like, dad, dad, I really want ice cream. Would he be kind of the father that would say, not right now? Like, it's just not appropriate for you to have that desire. My dad had moments of indulgence. You know, we would go into Walker, which was the closest town 750 people yeah he would do he would do um do errands on main street the post office and uh the print shop and um the bank and um you know there was a a bowling alley that was open in the mornings uh for coffee and and stuff like that and and when i was before i went to school i would go with him and he would he would love, he loved to go in there and read the paper while I would, he'd buy me like a bag of M&Ms or Skittles or something <laughs> like that. And that was a huge deal because we just, we never went out, you know, we never, never had like nice things like that. Or we go to Independence, which was the county seat town, of, you know, 5,000 people. Um, and uh, we'd go to the Dairy Queen on the, on the, on the river there. And I don't even know if you know what Dairy Queen is, but. Um, Ice cream, big, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, we, 
but we were never allowed to get like a blizzard, you know, which was like the, the kind of the, the nice, the nice ice cream dish. Uh, uh-huh. We would have to get like a cone or maybe if we were lucky, like a hot fudge sundae, you know, um, but something a little bit cheaper. So my dad had moments where he would really, you know, indulge, especially if it was just you and him, there was more of a chance of kind of attention in that, in that regard. But, but generally speaking, uh, no, I would say. I, I, you know, I kind of, I, I, I'm giving your dad some props because I like that he did allow some indulgence into the picture, but I like that it's not unrestrained indulgence. Like he takes you to the Dairy Queen and it's like, okay, there are rules here on how much we're going to indulge on this ice cream. And I I think that's like a a very important like kind of lesson that perhaps your dad was, I don't know if he was directly trying to instill, but maybe inadvertently instilled in you. Yeah. And that kind of touches on something we talked about last time, which is that, um, you've noticed a trend in parenting, uh, maybe among parents our age or a little older of kind of having no constraints um, emotionally or with, in terms of rules, like just not being good at setting boundaries. And um, I remember kind of growing up with a, a real sense of propriety and decorum whenever I was in public, a temper tantrum was not even, it was unthinkable, you know, mm. or or any kind of a public display of emotion, you know, or we were in people's homes a lot because my dad did work where he was, you know, promoting different ministries and organization. And he would do that really personally at people's homes and places of work and things like that. And, and so I was from an early age, really familiar with the inside of other people's homes and, and places. And so that, that is one thing that I really value from my upbringing is like, there was, uh, there were, there was a sense of a lot of constraint and propriety. So like you never acted out. And even to this day, I'll see people with their children in public and they're just, you know, running amok. (laughs) (laughs) And I do feel a little, I don't feel as much disdain as I used to. I don't feel as judgmental as I used to, because I know, you know, the struggle is real. Um, But I, I, I do count my blessings, you know, that that was never an issue for us growing up. And, um, I want to be the same kind of father figure at some point, hopefully. And it's kind of this idea of like a touch of complacency. Like, for example, if you're, let's yeah. say, in the hardware store and your desire, your immediate desire is beckoning at you, I need that ice cream, I need that ice cream, where your father is like, okay, I, you know, ice cream is not a never thing. Like, that's not, like, like it's not no. completely forbidden and banned forever. However, we need to develop complacency in this hardware store so that yeah. we can earn that ice cream later on. Yeah. And that's served me well. You know, I've been in New York several months now, and um, you've got to find ways of cutting corners financially to save money, whether that's, you know, make a cup of coffee at home instead of go out and buy a $6 latte. And so those rural prairie values that I learned in the upper Midwest growing up have served me well, you know, my grandma, my, my dad's mom grew up right in the middle of the depression, you know, and right in the middle of it, she got married and had her first child and her mom died. And so my dad, a lot of those values and traits were passed on to my dad. And I think that uh, they've served me well uh, these last several months in New York, where, you know, I um, I spent about half this year, 2020, not earning a paycheck. And um, I have earned a paycheck for the last, you know, several months here, but it's not, it's not been a ton of money. And I've had to, you know, figure out the whole astronomical rent thing in New York <laughs> and, uh, and just the higher cost of living, even go to the grocery store is more expensive. So um, those, those traits have served me serve me well. And I'm grateful for those for sure. Yeah. And so back to the, the constraints thing, you know, so on, on one hand, I have this pole, uh, and I think of like, you know, North and South pole, uh, is kind of my idea there uh, of my dad and, and his kind of the limiting voice that he was on me, uh, a voice of, uh, restraint and, um, contentment, mm. uh, you know, you need to be happy with what you have. Um, and you need to uh, kind of, in a sense, stifle your own ambition for the sake of uh, Christian duty and for the sake of uh, just, that's just the way we do it kind of thing, almost like family tradition. Yeah, let me ask you this. When you say um, stifling ambition, now it's very easy to see like the value in, in the ice cream and the hardware store example. In terms of your father's ambition, in terms of like career and, and things yeah. like that, yeah. Was it a sense of Christian duty? Like I'm going to take this job that perhaps pays less, but is going to allow me to better serve the community or, or, or 
play a specific role. So I'm like, did that also play into your father's uh, worldview? Yeah, that's such a good question. And these are some of the things that I'm still kind of figuring out and working out, you know, even in my uh, adult years. And I think that's true for all people. We spend a lot of time sorting out our childhood. But yeah, I think the answer to your question is yes. My dad, I think my dad's messaging belied his own sense of ambition. You know, my dad was um, was and is a talented communicator, and he's uh, really good at promoting uh, a cause, and um, he's very persuasive and and passionate. Um, and I think that my dad wanted to go really far with his life. You know, I think he once told me, and I don't know how serious he was, but I think he wanted to be kind of in like national leadership, even. You know, wow. like go into to public policy and politics and be, be the president, basically, you know, kind of setting his sights high, you know, on whatever that was. And in the end, my dad ended up in, um, back in the town that he grew up in. Um, he was the only child of his seven siblings that, uh, that came back to this rural enclave in, uh, that township uh, called, uh, Kono out in, in rural Iowa. And, uh, he ran the school that his his dad started. And, and it's interesting to think about uh, one of my favorite movies is it's a wonderful life. Um, <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. It's a great Reed. film. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, and, and I like it so much because, I mean, I think it's, it's really beautifully written in a lot of ways. And I, I love some of the tropes in it, uh, of course, but <laughs> I, I really relate to the story, you know, like uh, on a family level, like this young promising guy who wants to, shake the dust of this crummy town off his feet and go see the world. He wants to be an architect and, and he <laughs> wants to uh, go to Fiji and all these and work for the national geographic. Maybe, you know, he wants to do everything. And I think my dad had some of that in him, honestly, and he could have, you know, but like Jimmy Stewart, like George Bailey in this film, he's, he's pulled constantly pulled back into the orbit of his family and his family business sort of, sort of, so to speak, you know, right around the time my dad was, was kind of, coming up and had an opportunity to um, maybe to, to, to Washington, D.C. I think that's where he wanted to go. He, uh, his dad died. And I think I, I've never talked to my dad about this, you know, but I just thinking about the chronology of his life, I think just like, just like George Bailey, you know, his dad died at this, this important juncture and he's pulled back to Bedford Falls to, to run uh, Bailey building and loans. And, you know, my dad is, Right around that time, it was, you know, a year or two later, he moved back to Iowa um, and he helped run the school for thir the, that this ministry that my grandfather started for, he did it for 30 years from, you know, 81 on. And that's where we all grew up. And so I think my dad had some um, of his own uh, kind of disappointment, maybe, or stifled ambition. And I think the way, he, I don't know if he ever really got the opportunity to process that and what that meant for him, but somehow the messaging to me and probably to my siblings, although I've never talked to them about it, is that um, you kind of have to go back to the family farm and you need to go back to and, and run the family business if need be. And you need to set your sights low. Maybe that was his way of protecting himself from maybe the sadness of unaccomplished goals, um, things that he wasn't able to do in his life. Maybe that was his way of kind of coping. It is. It's interesting that you're you're saying this because I think that there there is no correct answer to all of this because on one hand we also have individuals in this world who are like if I only became more powerful if I only became more powerful if I only was president if only I was a CEO I would change it all I would really really change it all and meanwhile they've kind of neglected the things back at home, like yeah. the things back at home that, that really need order. And then you kind of scratch your chin a little bit being like, well, you've sort of left your family, your family or your home situation kind of in a bit of chaos. And, and now you're telling us that you can ho hold on to this like higher level of responsibility, whereas you kind of neglected the responsibility that was put before you. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, that's, and it's these, these are tough questions, Sam. Like, I, I don't know exactly what is the right line to draw there. Uh, they are tough questions. And I, 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 I like your, your, your point there because, you know, there is something good and beautiful about what George Bailey does in It's a Wonderful Life. You know, he comes back to a town and he, he leads that community. He ends up being, um, you know, sort of the leader, the moral leader of that community. And 
he saves a lot of lives and he um, helps a lot of people. And uh, I think the same is true for my dad. You know, my dad uh, was able to come back and do some really great things. But as I got older, I think I discovered that um, brother, this other figure in my life was maybe in some ways the, the mouthpiece of my dad's real heart, you know, like what my dad kind of the, the heartbeat of his own ambition sort of kind of worked its way out in an awkward way through my brother and the things that he would tell me and kind of his influence on my life. And so, and, and I didn't really wake up to my brother's influence until kind of around college and, and right after college. So kind of early twenties, but it was there for a long time. And I think my brother's message your brother's what, older than you, right? Five years older, exactly. Five okay. years older. And my brother was tremendously ambitious. You know, he, like my dad, he wanted to, his favorite movie, he was a jerk. He wanted to do journalism like my dad had done sh- for a short time. And he, a uh, communications kind of thing. And, you know, their favorite movie is All the President's Men, you know, Robert Redford and, and getting the story and digging deep, you know, and like doing it in a place like Washington, D.C., you know, and like, um, my brother, you know, wanted to work for the New York Times and, and he actually came to New York, uh, you know, 10, 12, 14 years ago for a, for a journalism, a short journalism institute here in New York City, you know, ground zero of, of journalism and, and, and stuff like that. So he, uh, he had his sets, sights set high too. And, and I think that my, it's kind of complicated, but I think that my dad's real heart on some of these issues came out through my brother. And so while my dad was much more kind of retiring, I'm using that as kind of just a general adjective of his kind of resigned in some ways to his fate. I mean, it kind of gets back to some of the things you were saying with the the Buddhist philosophy, although my dad is not Buddhist, but, (laughs) but, but that idea of kind of stepping back and stepping back and then encouraging me in very spiritual terms to kind of embrace my calling right here and right now and do the next thing. While my dad is saying those things, and I do want to say more about that, uh, my brother is telling me something very different. Let me ask you this question. Is there some type of interplay between your father and your brother? Like, does your father also tell your older brother, hey, this is great and all, why don't we kind of rein it back here? Yeah, I, they have an interesting relationship. So, you know, early on, my brother and my dad had a very adversarial relationship. You know, um, my brother was the rule breaker and the the rebel. And my parents are these this kind of pretty kind, like cons- very conservative Christian couple trying to run this Christian organization, this ministry, this boarding school for troubled kids. And my, my brother, who's kind of supposed to be like a good kid because he's like, you know, the headmaster's son essentially is just raising cane for them, you know? So I think he, that was complicated. You know, my brother, my brother, my dad butted heads. And at one point my brother was kind of shipped off because he's just too much, you know, like he had to go to somewhere else, you know, like somewhere else. So it was adversarial at first. When you say like, um, like a rebel rouser, do you mean in his like journalism activism work or was there no like... this was this was kind of before he left the house you know okay. this was like high school and then no so so he didn't really become a journalist activist uh until um till his 20s and by that point uh you know my dad is just really proud of him and and um you know encouraging him in his pursuits because i think in a lot of ways my brother the journalistic career that my dad kind of maybe wished he had had at some points, although I'm not saying that for sure, but maybe a little bit of that. So I think my brother was just encouraged by that, by that point, by my dad, but I think their relationship as far as ambition went was, it was like, my dad had never worked through his own maybe feeling of disappointment that he hadn't really arrived at his, his own goals, his own measure of, uh, of, you know, kind of self-realization. He, I don't think my dad ever worked through that. And so while I think he tried to sort of mask the, the, the pain of that, maybe he, um, he kind of just, his only register was kind of a spiritual register, you know, to say like, well, I can only understand this in terms of spiritual um, language. And, and, and again, that Christian kind of duty and responsibility but because it was never really worked out in my dad kind of internally, 
um, I think it sort of like came through anyways. And, and that's so true for parenting. Like you don't have to say kind of certain things for them to sort of come out in the messaging to, to children and, and the way children think about the world. And I think that's what happened with my brother. And I think my brother absorbed that more than I did early on. And it's tough, like, you know, for your father, because, you know, especially I, I say this, like when it comes to ambition, you know, some people have like the, the skill set and they have it and then they they had like an opportunity. And then that that can be very difficult to kind of grapple with because it's one thing to never have had the opportunity or never to have been in those higher circles or whatever and just be like, okay, this is my lot in life or this is all I'm, this is all I want. This is all I'm capable of. You know, like these, these, like not everyone's journey is the same. Not every father was in that position where they could just like grab like, oh yeah, I, I have a road here to the spiritual center of the universe. So right. it's, it's hard, I think for some people when those opportunities are before them and then they don't pick it up. It is. And, and just a couple examples of my dad's, um, you know, kind of spiritualizing tendency when it came to talking about contentment and ambition and my place in the world and what I should strive for. You know, there were three things that came to mind as I was thinking about what I would say today. And one was a hymn that we sang. It was in our, our, our Trinity hymnal, this red hymnal with 742 hymns in it. Uh, and uh, it was a kind of standard denominational hymn book. And um, there's a hymn in there written in the 1850s by a woman. And I think she was very sickly. And, you know, the 1800s were a hard, was a hard century for everybody. So, sure um, was, sure <laughs> was. I remember it like it was yesterday. Though, Sam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially the 1850s, you know, um, we all remember that, right? Um, yeah. But she, uh, I don't know much detail, many details about her, but I know that her hymn, it's entitled Father, I Know That All My Life. Um, and, and the first full line is father and father as in God, father, father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. Um, so the sense of like, God has all your days planned and, and things like that. And then there's one phrase in there that my dad quoted to me. And I think on multiple occasions, and I remember one occasion, even later where he just said, you know, as you know, there's this hymn and we knew it, you know, it's a prayer that as a Christian, I would be content to fill a little space if God be glorified, you know? And so this, this kind of coming back to the basics for my dad was kind of a tremendous spiritual implication. Like you need to be content to fill a little space. If that's what God wants, if that's, what's going to make God happy, that doesn't leave a lot of room for what you want in that situation, but it's very strong message. <laughs> now, this is something, and, and, you know, I, this is something I may have gotten into your father with a little bit in that, how do you know exactly what it is that God wants yeah, for you? Yeah. You know what I mean? Now here's, here's the deal. If I sent out a bunch of resumes to be CEO or something grand and God just kept on shutting the door in my face, <laughs> shutting the door in my face. Like, sir, Mr. A Mr. Azrod, you know, it was a pleasure seeing you today, uh, but no, th thanks, but no thanks. Then I would be like, okay, um, looks like God doesn't want me heading up this hill right now. And that's actually happened quite, you know, I have to say, Sam, that's happened to me quite a bit. There's been plenty of jobs and positions th that I've coveted and, and really wanted. And God just said, nope, not for you. And, and, and that's kind of where I agree with your father's interpretation of that, that, okay, it seems like these higher, you know, these higher spheres are closed off to me. That's God giving me a signal to kind of be content. But then if I'm just sitting at home and not doing anything about it, how do I know exactly that that's what God wants yeah. me to do? Yeah. And I don't know if I ever answered that question or got that question answered uh, in childhood. I've had to sort of like hit my head against the wall in a few occasions or the door, however you want to take that, that metaphor. But I think closed doors are, that is kind of a helpful concept you know, like um, you apply for something and you don't get it, or you um, go on a date with a woman and, you know, it doesn't work out like those, you know, these are close. Oh boy. Right? Tell me about right. that one. I mean, <laughs> work, basically work and relationships. Those are kind of the two big ones. Right. You know, yeah. and uh, other, and there are other, other examples, but yeah, I think a closed door is I, I I've come to appreciate that metaphor. Although um, it's only been through time and through, tr honestly, through the process of trial and error. And I, I think I underestimated how much God wants to teach us wisdom, uh, 
the skill, the skill of uh, the art of godly living from huh. Proverbs, um, th- that that God wants to teach us wisdom through the age-old process of trial and error. I think I was afraid of that. I was afraid of of error, and I was yeah. afraid of trial for sure. Um, but God, uh, I, I I think that God wants to to wants to teach us uh, some important lessons through that through that process. Moving the discussion. Um... In a previous podcast that you also listened to, I discussed with Daniel this idea of in, in Buddhism, there's this idea of being really, really, really content. And this is idea of complacency. And Daniel would actually add that that's also an extension of Eastern philosophy as well, yeah. because if you are not contempt, then you destroy the order of things in, in a very, very pronounced way. And that, that even goes to Confucius and some just like Confucius was very big on like, respect your father, yes. you yes, know, yes. like older, like younger brother needs to listen to right. older brother. Like Confucius was really big on that. And there's this idea that if you're not complacent with what's going on around you, you threaten to destroy the social order that's around you. Yeah. And then I, I also revealed that in Judaism, that is a, strong, strong religion of activism of like, whoa, we got to get out of Egypt. Pharaoh is not treating us right. right. Like, like we need to part this Red Sea and go right through there. So this is a huge conflict that I have in my own life because I, I love listening to Buddhist teachings and and it helps with the materialism. It helps make those old sneakers that I have look really awesome and feel great, <laughs> you know? So I, I, get, I get this like wonderful, wonderful feeling from Buddhism in helping me deal with materialism yeah. and just silly nonsense going and getting ice cream kind of desires, right? Yeah. Really helpful. But then Judaism helps me with like, Aaron, you're just sitting here not doing all that much. Right. And I don't think I, I don't think that that's what you're meant to be doing right now. I'm curious to hear what what is the Christian uh, answer to this? Man, that's a, that's a <laughs> that's a million dollar question. I, I think I love the way you've described that tension. And I feel it in my own. I feel it in my own self, my own inner being. 100%. I mean, I think that's some, what you just said sums up a lot of my own struggle in adulthood is when to be more, uh, when to sit back and be retiring and when to get up and, and, and press, press, press on, you know, I'm going to come to an answer, the Christian answer. I, 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 I dabbled in yoga a little bit right before coronavirus, uh, January, February, I was getting into yoga a little bit, just, um, mo- kind of more for the, the physical element of it, but you know, it was interesting to hear people talk about at a lot of different yoga services. I was sorry, not services, but whatever you want to call them, <laughs> yoga services. You know, during the hour that you're in there for hot yoga or whatever, uh, a lot of times the yoga instructor will give what amounts to basically like a short sermon. And I, I, there was such a strong and repeated theme of like having compassion for yourself. And that was new, that caught me off guard. And I realized how much of my life, I mean, you even said it just as we were starting to talk today, like, um, you know, you need to, <laughs> don't be hard on yourself, you know, like remember uh, to, to give place to compassion for yourself and uh, extend grace to yourself um, in the same way that you would as someone else. And I mean, I don't know if that's exactly the same as what you're describing, the Buddhist and, and, and Judaism, Buddhism, Judaism dichotomy. Um, but I think that that conversation about having compassion for myself um, extended into, um, you know, a contemplative mind and meditation and just that kind of inner sanctuary uh, side of life, which I haven't developed. And, and I haven't developed because my experience of the Christian faith has been so, so basically so much more Judaism oriented, at least in the way you're describing it. It's been not always the the right or good kind of activism. Christians are are misguided on that a lot of times, unfortunately. But but just like a, a the tyranny of the urgent is what I felt growing up, and a lot of that had to do was a lot of that was justified in Christian terms that there are things to do and you need to do them for the kingdom of God and you need to uh, do do your duty basically, and you know my but it was also uh, spiritualized a lot of times, you know, because my dad is. Um, very representative of, uh, you know, a, a Midwesterner, a boomer of that generation of that uh, area, um, very task oriented, you know, ne- doesn't know how to rest, work 
works on vacation, that kind of thing. And it's, it is tyrannical. It's a tyrannical way to grow up. And a lot of times in my house, it was justified in Christian terms. And this is what Christians do. Um, But there were a lot of cultural things too. So I have not hit the balance on this. And I don't, I know that Christianity has resources for striking this balance, but I personally haven't worked it out. You know, this, this also reminds me of the Jewish idea of mitzvah. And mitzvah is just, you know, a fancy word for doing good deeds. Right. And in, in Judaism, I think there is emphasis pressed on um, certain, act, like following Shabbat, for example, is considered a mitzvah. Like that, that, that that's like your, a good action. So I think there's this idea when it comes to like spiritual salvation that is tied differently with different religions. Whereas I think that you can reach salvation or enlightenment in Eastern philosophy by not necessarily the things that you do, and I think there is Buddhism, like, I don't want to overgeneralize with this, because I think that, a, like, if I did speak to a Buddhist monk, they'd be like, yeah, you should totally help that elderly lady, and, and you should, mm-hmm. yeah, you should be doing yeah. good behavior. Like, I don't want to characterize it as that. Like, it's definitely not just, like, sit in one place and do nothing all day. No. But I think with Buddhism, the ultimate goal is foregoing desire. And I've, I've heard that, like, every Buddhist book that I've read, I've heard that echoed a thousand times over, forego desire. And I think that you could achieve enlightenment through foregoing desire and not necessarily take the most actions in your life, but right. still reach this enlightened state. Whereas Judaism, and, and perhaps also in Christianity, since it is Judeo-Christian thought, right. if you're not taking mitzvahs every day, if you're not doing hardcore action, and I think this is kind of the umbrella that your father fell under, then you may miss out on some kind of salvation. For sure. You know, and I, when I got to college, um, and especially seminary in the 2010s, um, I heard people talking about self-care. I'd literally never heard that word before, that phrase, excuse me, self-care, this idea that you would, um, again, going back to this idea, having compassion for yourself and, um, you know, resting and finding a good sort of rhythm in your life. Um, that was totally new to me because the self growing up, especially in Christian terms, was always the last thing that you considered, you know, and before that you considered others and you considered your duty before God. And you never really stopped to think about what you needed or what you wanted. And so that was a really novel concept. And so I think, you know, to use your dichotomy, I'm trying to, I feel like I've been steeped in the sort of the the Judaism side of things, Um, you know, get off your get off your butt, <laughs> get off your butt and get, and get busy. Right. And, and, and I think I'd like to, to, um, to be steeped a little bit more kind of in the, in the Buddhism side of things, so to speak. Absolutely. Now, both uh, me and you are millennials, right? And yeah. this is, this is an, an, an issue that, that affects us, especially like uh, we're both over 30. Right. Yep. And, you know, I think twenties, you can totally have a relaxed lifestyle. Like, I think it's very easy for that to happen where you go to college, you're told what to do. And then it's like, oh, I've never been to Japan. Let me go to Japan. Right. Like, and you have that, you have, you have, you have that kind of space to be totally complacent and you have that, you you don't really need to have And we're also, I have to say this, we're also guys. And for us, we can have kids when we're in our early to mid forties. So like we we have an advantage, you know, we we do have an unfair advantage over women in the sense that we, we have a very long drawn out biological clock. So, but eventually once you, you know, you start getting into your thirties, that ambition of like, geez, Louise, I'm not going to be on this earth forever. I kind of need to start stepping it up a little bit. Yeah. That's that starts hitting you. And I, I think we discussed earlier that you have some great questions that people our age could sort of ask ourselves. Yeah, totally. Thank you, man. I, I agree. And and I, I felt that pressure uh, just before I come to those questions. I felt that pressure, you know, in 2012, um, in, in, in the course of 10 months between end of December and beginning of November. Uh, so end of December 2011 to November 2012, three of my four siblings got married. Yeah. And it was, I was 24 at the time and um, it was, uh, it really caught me off guard. And I think I felt a lot of pressure to sort of join the married ranks because, you know, in my family, there's so much emphasis on um, marrying, marrying young and having children and contributing 
you know, to, <laughs> to society and to, and to, especially to sort of Christian society, you know, and I was, I still haven't joined that 10 years later, just about, and I, there is still a pang a pain that I feel about not having arrived at certain goals and benchmarks of my, my brothers and sisters when it comes to family, to, um, to marriage, to children, to jobs even. And so, uh, I, uh, I definitely feel that going back to your questions though, I think that something we can really do for each other is just be as present as we can in each other's lives and, uh, cultivate friendship. And, and then, uh, you know, a big part of friendship is helpful presence. Uh, and that dates that goes all the way back to the early pages of, of scripture. Um, you know, I think that's what part of what we're created for, for each other is, is help a helpful presence. And one of the things that we can do is ask each other good questions and, you know, question, asking questions is an art. Um, it's an art form. It requires a lot of practice, uh, trial and error, going back to that concept, but we can, especially when it comes to professional things and personal things, um, we can help each other by asking good questions. And I was just thinking like, you know, um, I think through the, the relationships that we pursue, um, and the jobs that we apply for, um, those are reflections of our values and reflections of what we're seeking in, in life. And so, you know, we can draw each other out by, by asking good questions to those around us. Um, you know, I, I thought of a few that reflects kind of my twenties, there's a vision for each of our lives and, and it may be our vision or it may be, you know, our family's vision for our lives. Um, or it may be what we think God wants for our lives. You know, you asked earlier, how do we know what God wants? So just asking people and observing like whose vision for your life are you living out? Yes. Um, yes. Is so important. Um, who do you imagine, um, is looking over your shoulder, you know, as you do that job or pursue that thing or whose voice is inside your head, you know, self-talk is so incredibly important. No one talks to you more than you. <laughs> so, but, but there's voices inside of our head. And a lot of times it can be a, an ornery parent or, uh, uh, an overly ambitious older brother that says, Hey, if you don't achieve these things, then, you know, what, what are, what good are you? Whose legacy are you honoring? You know, I saw that in my parents so much, you know, they were the youngest in their families and their fathers were pastors. And I think their sense of identity and calling uh, uh, as I was growing up had so much to do with kind of carrying the story forward, you know, of their family and being um, standard bearers, you know, uh, of a certain family legacy and heritage that was very Christian. And, and I think they did that sometimes unquestioningly. And, um, you know, that, that, that both help and hurt, uh, you know, me and, and, and them probably, who are you trying to impress? That's such an important thing. And I think about dating, like weirdly, I'm, this is kind of vulnerable to admit this, but, you know, to say that, like, if you were dating somebody who was like too pretty or something like that, like there was suspicion, you know, like in a, in a way, like I had just a very like weird, uh, relationship to like pretty girls growing up because it was like, they're kind of off limits. Cause it was like vain to date them. Right. Um, Van yeah. You know? yeah. Vanity. And vanity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And even now, like, uh, it's a fair question to ask people who are dating, like, who are you trying to, or, or not just dating, but a job that you're seeking or a decision that you're making? Yeah, um, yeah. Who are you trying to impress? Is that true to yourself? Is that genuine to yourself? And I think that we're all in search of a verdict. I felt that with my um, my job hunting. I felt that with dating. Um, we're, we're longing for someone or something or some experience to sort of pronounce the final verdict over our lives that we can, um, that we have arrived, that we have achieved what we set out to achieve and that we are, um, that we are worthwhile. I'm, I'm really liking this idea. And what you're saying reminds me of a quote from the psychologist, Jordan Peterson, like only compare yourself to the person you were the day before. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. And I also like this idea, Sam, of what you're saying that there are eyes and ears 
that are in our brain of other people that are judging everything that we do. And, and this is all of us, whether you had a very soft dad or a hard dad, but whatever it is, you have these people. And then have you ever had this thing, Sam, where you're doing something and then you're just like, you picture what your grandma would react to. And, and then, and then you're like, Oh, well, if my grandma was here and saw this, she would be that. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, now I have to say that these voices and, and eyes can be a positive thing. Like if there's a kid yeah. out there that is, you know, someone offers that kid drugs and they have grandma's voice entering their head being like, you're my, my little, my, my little Sam is going to take drugs. You know, that's a good thing. It's good to have grandma's voice embedded in your mind, like preventing you from taking drugs or doing other questionable activity. But then when it comes to something like your brother pursuing journalism, then we kind of need to silence those voices. And this is, this is immensely difficult because sometimes grandma's voice is 100% correct. And then sometimes grandma has another voice on some other issue and that's not really correct. And we have to kind of do the difficult sorting work. Yeah, totally. And I think what you're describing is, is pretty natural um, and, and, and common and even kind of biblical. Like there's an idea like in uh, Deuteronomy, you know, even in the Shema that, you know, you're, you're instructed to teach your children, um, the way of the Lord and, um, and, and Moses refers to it later in Deuteronomy and Isaiah picks up on it. Um, this idea that we're sort of walking down the path and, uh, these, um, you could say the voices inside our head, not to sound weird about it, but the voices inside our head kind of keep us on the path. They keep us from veering to the right or to the left. And they sort of whisper, you know, just stay the course, you know, and so those are, um, that was a huge part of, of seminary for me, you know, pastor training was a mentoring community of, of professors and uh, uh, gaining a collection of voices inside my head. And many of them are so wise, you know, mm. but, but a huge part of adulthood for me is sort of moving beyond just the basics of kind of an automatic robotic response to the voices that I've inherited and becoming my own person. And that, that is what I call discernment. I mean, and that takes time and pain and and sadness to learn. Um, but it's worth it. You know, it's worth it to, um, to become your own person and to develop sort of your own, your own voice. And, uh, it's uh, kind of what it means to mature and become an adult in a lot of ways. I, I like what you said about sadness because, you know, you, these voices typically are good people in your life. Like I love my grandma. Like that's a good person in my life. And you feel like I, I, like if I listen, if I list all of the things my grandma told me, I would say probably 85% of it is really awesome and definitely sticking to it. But then you have this, like this guilt of like in that 15% that maybe wasn't correct, you have guilt on so many levels. Like this was an older and wiser person. You know, there, there's that there's yeah, and that's like the Confucius thing where it's like, you're defying an elder in some way. And this, this creates immense levels of guilt, but then you, you are, you have to ask yourself like, okay, I want to move forward or maybe, maybe just maybe in this 15% area, like I can still love and respect my grandma, but at the same time, I just, I have to differ and it's not a disrespect thing. And, you know, God bless her wherever she is. She would see that and be like, you know what? Maybe my grandson was right in that like 15%. And I just didn't see that, you know, because no, no perfect no human being is perfect, no matter how no. old they get. Yeah. You know, when I started therapy, I, I went to professional therapy for about a, uh, 18 months uh, between 2013 and 2015. And it was kind of encouraged, although not required by my seminary uh, courses to do that. And I'm so glad I did. And I talked briefly about that in our last podcast. But when I started, I felt like such a traitor, you know, a Benedict Arnold, a Judas Iscariot, you know. Uh, because I was telling, it was like, I was telling on my family, mm, you know, yes. um, and if I felt so bad about it, you know, because like, but I had sort of had to do it. I kind of had to reckon with the past in order to move forward into the future. And, and um, to do that, I had to sort of tell on my family and, and almost 
it felt slanderous. It felt slanderous. Like I was, um, or go- like I was gossiping about them, like telling stories about things that my, my dad did or said, you know, um, that, that hurt me or hampered me, um, or things that, you know, various caregivers did that, that weren't helpful. And, um, and, I, you know, it, it wasn't slanderous because it was just, it was in the confidentiality of therapy, you know, right. but, but at the same time, I still felt really bad about it because I was sort of like, I was sort of blowing up the family myths, you know, about happiness and healthiness and, and, and wholeness. And yeah, there were aspects of that, but there were also, there was, there were also a lot of toxic relationships growing up. And there were also a lot of really unhelpful dynamics and patterns that we're, that we inherited from previous generations. And so I felt like a little, like a snitch. I felt like a brat um, because I was doing that, but I had to do it. I had to blow up the, the colossus of, of the family myth, the family cult to, um, to move forward. And, and there was no other way. There was no other way. Yes. And, you know, Sam, I, you know, it's, it's glad that you mentioned, because I think this is something we all struggle with, with like blowing up the the family colossus. I like the way you described it, but I think that there is always that possibility that you'll grow from that very careful examination. And it's not like, it's not like this universal condemning of your family, like everything they taught me was wrong. It's like, it's not that at all. Like that that has to be very clear. And I think, I think our movies and our, things are very you know our media is very black and white where it's like screw you dad i'm going to show you the real way to do this and it's a it's a really black and white depiction but it's actually not that at all it's a very careful and methodical sorting of every little thing and then i think that it's useful because then you as a person can grow and then maybe you can go to your family and be like mom dad brother here are the here's the incredible list of awesome things that you gave me. Here's our, you know, it's a Venn diagram, right? It's a Venn diagram. Totally. Here's the, and, and chances are the good stuff has way more bullet points than the iffy stuff, right? You go to totally. your family and then you're like, these are the awesome things that you did and, and instilled me with. Here are some areas that I, I disagree with, but it's coming yeah. out of, out of love. And, and maybe you'll see it my way one day, or maybe you won't. I still love you anyway. And, and, and yes, I, I think that that, that is the way. Yeah, I uh, I love that, and um, you know, we, we tend to either uh, kind of demonize or de- deify, uh, you know, our family system and uh, our family of origin and, and the way we grew up. Almost kind of a fascist, blind loyalty to mm. uh, the dicta of our upbringing, but or we uh, we just trash it. You know, it was like just total, just complete garbage. You know, it's I don't know why we do that. We're just black and white like that. But I think. A gr- part of growing in, in discernment is uh, being able to kind of sift through the good and the bad. And it's very archeological uh, kind of paleo, like paleontology. You have to kind of brush those rocks and bones really carefully and, and, and sift or, or like sifting for gold, you know, like you have to find what's good and, and, um, and be positive. And, and even as I've gotten older, I went through a really, a kind of a deconstruct, you, you got to go through some kind of deconstructive period though, where you feel like, definitely you're doing you're more negative than uh than positive right yes um you got to go through that period but you will come out on the other side and um as you grow in grace and the goodness of uh of the universe you will um be able to be less of a jerk about it and to say wow i was really hurt by that but you know even in the last few days i've had opportunity to talk to some cousins about my grandma who Kind of helped raise uh, raise me a little bit, and and I've had opportunity to talk to my dad even today, and 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 even in those moments, I've sort of just through verbally processing been able to land on some really good things that that they did, some really yeah beautiful beautiful things that they bequeathed to me, and um, I'm so thankful. And um, it took you know your sort of you drawing me out through these questions. I think what you're doing is a great example of what we can do for others as we um, dig into our own stories. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Sam. You know, kind of end off here on this idea that when we are doing this sorting, right, we have to be confident going back to ambition versus desire and all this other stuff that when we look our family in the eyes, it is with 
noble ambitions and noble pursuits. And I think that that's the most important thing. So if you're a young person listening to this, the idea is that you don't just defy your parents and say, I'm pursuing my ambitions of being, you know, addicted to drugs or something like that. That's not what we're advocating for. So we're, we're saying that when you are carefully examining the family setup or the, fi- the family rule system, when you do confront your parents, you are bringing some like rubies to the table of like, here's my ambition. And I think your brother, when he was in high school, he wasn't able to do that because maybe he was just getting into like teenage nonsense. And like, that's not something you can really, you know, go to your parents with and be like, hey, look, dad, I got suspended from school. This is my, (laughs) this is my ambition. Like, that's not a real gem. That's not a ruby that you can present or an alternative. But I think when your brother was able to go to your father and be like, I am involved in muckraking journalism and I'm exposing all of these things. He is bringing to your father a gem of ambition. And I think that's the critical distinction that we need to make. Yeah. You know, my dad always loved Psalm 127, which is this idea that um, children are a heritage of the Lord, you know, this incredible gift and unexplored potential uh, just packed. I mean, it's an amazing thing. And the favored and blessed man and women men and women uh, are like warriors with, uh, with quivers full of arrows. That's kind of what it's like to have children, you know, with filled with promise, you know? And I think it excited my dad that he was like, you know, sort of like sending us into the world to uh, carry forth blessing and, um, and eventually to, to, to wherever we go. And, you know, and I do want to make them proud. I want to, um, be an honor to the family name and, and even to my faith as a Christian, I think that's important and consistent with that. You know, I don't want to be bound by that. I have to become my own person and make my own mistakes and have my own successes and not worship at the family altar. But I also want to make them proud. And and then someday I can come back and um, we can have an honest conversation about know where we've been and what we've been up to failures and highlights and um, thorns and roses and uh, we can learn from each other you know I learned from them and and then and then uh, they can also learn from me and I I look forward to that day for sure absolutely and I think I think that the messaging here is that the value the family value system is intact but you're just taking your own road in maintaining it. Sam, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you, Aaron. This concludes the 37th episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.